Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks. I'm battlefield historian Matt McLaughlin and thank you for joining us on these walks across the great battlefields of Europe. I hope you're enjoying the episodes we've done previously. I know I have really enjoyed bringing them to you and someone else who I suspect is enjoying it as well as my partner in crime. It's Pete Smith. Pete, welcome back. Great to be walking the battlefields again. Hi Matt, great to be with you. Looking forward to this one. It's uh, an unusual one. It certainly is. We're leaving the First World War behind and we're going to the Second World War now. I think this is our first foray into World War II, but a fascinating angle of the Second World War. We're going to be talking about an element of the vengeance weapons, the the Nazi insidious plan to fire rockets and, and, and missiles on the United Kingdom and other parts of Europe during the war. Just a, a fascinating chapter of the Second World War. Um, let's start, Pete. Tell us, what, what, what are we talking about here? What, what was the Vengeance Weapons Program and what part of it are we going to be focusing on? Right, well, we're talking about towards the end of the war. So 1944, um, D-Day is just about uh, uh, taking place or has just taken place. And suddenly uh, the UK is faced with this, this, this new weapon. And these are V-1s, flying bombs that are going to be launched from Europe and uh, are going to be aimed at London. The whole idea really is to, uh, uh, is, is to kill people, obviously, but it's to destroy, um, I suppose, the will uh, of the British public to continue. They were called vengeance weapons, and the vengeance is really for the destruction of Hamburg. Hitler was furious that uh, our planes had, had got through to the extent where we could cause an enormous uh, fire uh, bomb attack on, on Hamburg, which, which basically burnt out the centre of Hamburg. Terrible, terrible casualties. And so he set upon this this idea that he wanted to have some vengeance for that, and these V1s are part of part of that. They're actually about a year late in in their delivery and their execution of being able to uh, fire them across the channel to to Britain, 
but still a, a big shock. A, a shock that we were aware of, but hoped to be able to take out. Now, I suppose we could say, how are we aware of, of, of these weapons? Well, it's to do with aerial reconnaissance, really, and photographing the landscape. We were photographing northern France constantly, and we can see things being built. The big I suppose issue is what are these things that are being built and it's going to take some some kind of joining dots together that allows us eventually to realize something that was being developed on the Baltic the Baltic coast there's a place called Pinamunda where they're actually uh, testing and uh, and developing these these rockets um, and then we see these ramps being built or these something being built we're not quite sure what in northern France and the the dots are eventually joined and we realize what's going on well, we're going to walk one of these sites in northern France, which is really exciting. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about the technology, because there were three distinct types of vengeance weapons that were developed during the course of the war. Absolutely cutting-edge technology for the time. Quite revolutionary. It was, it was the Nazis putting science to a, a terrible purpose, but still very progressive in terms of the technology. Tell us about the three different types of vengeance weapons that were developed during the war. Well, the first one is the V1, and this is what we're going to be walking through a V1 site. And this is effectively the easiest way to look upon it from a modern perspective. It's a cruise missile. It's your Mark I cruise missile, a missile that's going to be fired from Europe. It's got no kind of uh, uh, way of controlling it once it's been launched. It's working just from a gyro compass. In other words, you set it and off it goes in one direction. When the fuel runs out, it hits the ground and, and detonates. It's as, as simple as that. So that's the V1. We're going to talk about more about it in, in a little while. The V2, now this is a very different weapon. This is a modern rocket, and in fact, uh, the development of the V2 will lead eventually to the space race and us getting to the moon. So we can see the kind of development that we're having with the V2. So it's a, an interballistic missile that will literally go up out of sight and then come straight down on the target. So that's the V2 being developed in conjunction with the V1. And then we have the V3. Now, what I should say, V1, V2 were operational and did fire during the war. V3 did not because it was bombed so heavily that it, that it never got going. And what was it? Well, it was a super gun. It was effectively a gun that was capable of firing shells across the sh channel and onto a set target. Again, it, it's London. So literally a gun capable of firing across the channel. It's firing from tunnels. So it's not your, your normal barrel of, of a, a cannon or a gun. This is firing through tubes that are, are dug into the ground, into the, into the chalk. So difficult to spot again. So, it, But it was spotted by the aerial reconnaissance and that was taken out so it didn't ever fire. Pete, the, it's a fascinating chapter of the, the story of the Second World War and, and terrifying if you think of the people in London with V1 doodlebug rockets landing on them and V2s appearing out of nowhere. How effective were they as weapons in the, in the course of the war? I think it's, it's a difficult question to answer because if you were beneath one that landed, then it was very effective. But compared to the strategic bombing that had taken place, those so the blitz of London and other cities, obviously it wasn't just London. Very often we'd concentrate on London, but in fact my home city, uh, Hull, was very badly damaged during uh, during the, the, the blitz, um, the attack against major cities. So compared to, to the heavy bombing, it, it's it's minor. But it's it's important because of the timing. The time it is, we've just landed, literally, we've just landed on the coast. So uh, 6 of June, the landing. And these missiles, these V1s, start landing on the 13th of June. And they're only going to land for about three months. So it's, a, it's a three months, that's all it is. But three months of, of rockets coming over, of, of these uh, these flying bombs coming over, 
you know, on a re- fairly regular basis. And so it's, uh, yeah, it became a problem. But compared to the strategic bombing, it's, it's not a, it, it, it's really a minor pass. But as a terror weapon, which is what it was at the end of the, almost at the end of the war, when we know that this is getting towards the end of the war, we're landing in Europe and hopefully if everything goes well, we will be forcing the Germans back beyond their own borders and, and, and the end of the war. Um, it was a, a shock to the civilian population who obviously didn't know anything about it to be hit suddenly by these flying bombs. And they're very visual. You can see and hear these things coming. Well, obviously with this new technology, with the, the huge task of firing weapons from France that can hit London, there's obviously going to be a lot of infrastructure required. And that's what gives us the beauty of the walk today is that there still are a lot of sites scattered around northern France where you can see remnants of these of of the v of the v one and v two launches, can't you? Indeed, you can. It's one of the rather odd aspects of this walk that we're going to be doing. This is called a ski site. Uh, I better say where it is. It's a place called Bois de Huit Rue. Uh, my French is appalling, um, but it's near Hasbrook, which is almost on the border between France and Belgium. Um, and this is called a ski site. And what is, why is it called a ski site? Well, it's the way it looked from the sky. There is a building that's used for storage, storing the, the, uh, the rockets that had a look of a ski on its side. And that's how it gets its name. So there's a lot of concrete here, an awful lot of concrete. And so not a single ski site. And there were over 900 of them built, um, 90 of them built. And not a single one actually fired successfully or fired at all. They were all so visual and visible from the air that they were bombed before they could uh, they could fire. So, in fact, this site that we're going to walk through didn't ever fire in anger. It was taken out before it could fire. I should also mention at this point that if you eventually do, you know, when we travel, when people can travel again, if, uh, if you make it to northern France and are interested in this history, there's a wonderful museum called La Capole near um, Saint-Omer, I believe, in the north of France. And it's absolutely fascinating. It tells the full story of the V-weapons. And it's contained within a huge concrete dome that the Nazis built to, um, to shelter V-2 rockets. Uh, and it was a site that was, again, very badly attacked, so never became operational, thank God. Um, but it's a fascinating museum, a fascinating building. So there's, there's, there's so much. If you're interested in this, there is so much to see in the north of France. Uh, and some of these buildings are so vast that they almost take your breath away. They look odd. Uh, and in fact, there's another one called the Blockhouse, which is uh, very close, uh, close to Le Coupole, this great big dome. And they are so big and so vast that they almost look odd in, in their surroundings. They're normally little wooded surroundings, these great big concrete buildings. And that was actually the way that, that Hitler viewed it, is... Let's get some really big structures out there. We'll try and hide them, but if we can't hide them, these are going to be so big and so heavy and so so much concrete that you will not be able to destroy them. And in fact, there is an element of truth in that. Uh, some of these were so large that they were destroyed by destroying the infrastructure around them and the landscape around them because the building itself could not be destroyed. We should also mention a, a dark chapter of this is that a lot of these huge structures were built with um, labour from, from work camps, from concentration camps and prisoners of war as well from the Eastern Front. So we should also always, when we're talking about these sites, remember the huge numbers of the, the cost in lives to, to build these, uh, these enormous structures. It's something we shouldn't forget about them uh, as we tour them. 
I think it's cle- it's clever, Matt, isn't it? The, the Germans were very clever because they they mix it all together. So we have this terrible aspect, the slave labour, organised by uh, Todd, which was the the work unit. Basically, it was uh, the the people that organised and and ran the, this this work. But they're also using French contractors and Belgian contractors who are actually being employed to to work here. Um, and then we have uh, uh, people that are being conscripted. They're being paid still, but they're being conscripted into into working on these sites. So it's it's a real mix: slave labour, uh, conscripted workers, prisoners of war, uh, and then c- civilian contractors uh, also working on them. Well, let's walk the site. That's a fabulous background, and thank you for that, Pete. About the the Vengeance Weapons Program, let's walk this V one the V one flying bomb site. I'm just going to add one thing before we set off, and that is to say that this was not just to to destroy uh, London. There were also plans for them to fire a lot further and to to get as far as Bristol on the far side of the country. But we mainly concentrate on London because that was uh, where the bulk of the of the actual rockets will land. So as we set off walking into the site, the first building that we're going to see is a building that was called the reception building. And this is where the lorries actually pulled up alongside uh, the building and unloaded uh, by crane the rockets onto trolleys. Um, and that's all they did. Uh, so it's a reception building for the, the receiving. Now, you have to understand that all of this is trying to be done quietly. So everything was camouflaged. The buildings themselves are quite substantial. Uh, you know these rockets are, are are big. These are not small things. So you need to build big buildings to uh, to take to take them. The other thing to point out is the landscape around these is fairly pockmarked, and I sometimes associate it with the landscape of the battle on battlefields of the First World War, because these were heavily bombed, and you can see the craters are, are all around us and very very visible, and some of them are, are enormously deep craters. Uh, so that's just 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 one of the aspects of these. They were bombed very heavily, but you didn't need to destroy all the buildings. So some of these buildings are absolutely intact, and others are totally destroyed. So the reception building is actually one of those buildings that's been fairly heavily damaged. So we'll carry on past the reception building, and then we see a building on the right hand side, and these are personnel shelters. These are shelters for the men to actually shelter in during these bombing raids. You know, the personnel had to get out and try and uh, survive, and hopefully get the site up and running again. So we have shelters for the crews, and then we walk along this concrete road, and that's another aspect that we is always very very visual here. They were very good at road building. They needed to be. Again, these rockets are heavy, and they have to be pulled on these little sleds, these little carriages. Um, and uh, you needed nice concrete roads, so we always get really good concrete. They have to say the Germans were good at building roads. The uh, the roads are still used all over by the farmers uh, to the, to get to these sites. We see them very often. Peter, I think it's one of the interesting aspects of of this that we uh, sometimes overlook is that we t- talk about the machinery and the technology. But at the end of all, at the end of all the day, you need people to operate these things, don't you? And and therefore they need somewhere to shelter, they need somewhere to be fed, they need somewhere to sleep, and obviously to also shelter during bombing raids. So it's it's it was a fascinating aspect of the war that you touched on it before that the the Allies learnt pretty quickly that you didn't necessarily have to destroy the sites as long as you disrupted the ability of the people to use them. And I recall not going off too much of a tangent, but I recall visiting the U-boat pens in Saint Nazaire. And I'm sure we'll do that on a future episode of, of this podcast. But that was basically the same technique. The U-boat pens were so huge and strong and indestructible that the Allies, instead of trying to destroy the pens, just decided to absolutely level the city around it so that people couldn't live and work uh, and get to the pens because of the destruction around them. 
it became a part of the tactics, really, of the of the bombing war. And just to put that into into perspective, for these three months and and the time prior when the sites were actually firing, about a, a quarter of the operations taking place, the bombing raids taking place in occupied Europe, were aimed at these sites at the uh, uh, at the launch points. It was seen as, as so critical. And if you imagine everything else that they're trying to bomb all over Europe, then to take a quarter of that, twenty five percent of of the effort is spent on taking out these sites. It, it, you realise that these were seen as crucial to take out, um, and and so yeah, enormous effort. And and we can see uh, we see the damage to these buildings and to the landscape around them. It's it's very visual. And with 96 sites to, to take out as well, and this is only the uh, the, the ski sites, then it's a, it's a, it needs a, a big effort. And certainly uh, all the Air Forces, the American Air Force, the 8th Army Air Force um, was was operating here. And everybody trying to, uh, to to bomb at various times. They're even using Spitfires and mosquitoes to fly in quickly and and drop a bomb because you only need, as I said, to take out one building and this uh, or, or part of the ramp, or and then it couldn't fire. Um, so they, they were. We, we get them changing. The way that they're going to be built will change. And this is a ski site, and this is big, concrete, and very visible. But uh, later on, we get sites that are not quite as visible and, and, and more difficult to find. And that's how the, they continue firing, because every ski site was destroyed before it could fire. Anyway, onwards with the, with the walk. And the next building that we're going to come to is, is, is called the Preliminary Assembly Building, and the name gives it away. This is where you start putting the thing together. It's where you test the engine to make sure that, it, that it's running properly. It's where you fit the nose cone onto it, and you check the warhead to make sure that the, the warhead is, is all tickety-boo, because the last thing you want is it going off before it's actually launched. So it's, it's just basically a check and starting to put the, the, the thing together. Then it's moved into what is the most substantial building on the site other than the launch ramp, and that are these ski buildings. Now, these ski buildings are about 80 metres long. Uh, They're four metres wide and high, so they're square. If you look at the end of it, it's totally square. It's got a curve at the end, so it's a a very big visual uh, building. And it can take seven of of the rockets, so seven rockets nose to tail inside the building, all getting ready and and not slowly as they're coming in, heading towards the launch ramp uh, to be used. So this was a a very important building, and there are three of them. So there's not just one, there are three of these. Well, you try hiding these. Try hiding a building that's 80 metres long and four metres wide and four metres high, and there's three of them, and they're built out of enormous blocks of concrete, breeze blocks, then filled with more concrete and sometimes extra walls around them to try and give them a little bit more protection. But these are substantial buildings. Well, Pete, talk to me about camouflage and attempts to hide them, because I know today as we walk these sites, they're just raw concrete and they, they absolutely stand out in the landscape. But obviously the, the Germans were, doing, were making some effort to, uh, to disguise them in the landscape. Talk to me about some of the techniques they used to try and hide these from the Allies. Well, cunningly, some of the buildings, and this is not one of them, you really couldn't hide this in the, the shape of it, just gave it away. But some of the other buildings, like the reception building, uh, personnel shelters, primary assembly building, can either be camouflaged as farm buildings. So they look a little bit like farm buildings. And very often you can see brickwork and stonework on the, on the exteriors that makes it look like a farm building. Camouflage netting. Uh, would 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 hide them. They were often painted to uh, to to blend with the uh, with the surroundings. Um, but 
and woods. I suppose woods are the most important. They're always within a wooded area, as this is. We are in a in a in a wood, so that's one of the ways that you can you can hide things. But of course, you've still got to build the roads. You've still got to build the infrastructure. The missiles have to get here somewhere, so there's always railway lines close by. So fuel storage. There's lots of ways that people began to realise what was going on. And in fact, interestingly. They they were telling the local populations that these were garages for vehicles, the vehicle stores for, for vehicles. And the local people, and especially the, the people involved in the resistance, thought, no way, too much concrete. This is not a garage. This is something much more substantial. And that's how we start to get information uh, coming back uh, about, uh, about what was going on in, in northern France and Belgium. So walking on through the site, I can see there's a lot of concrete around us here. What, uh, what are the, what's the next buildings we come up to? Yep, the next building is called the catapult cleaning and the and the compressor. Um, uh, so this building again, it's a, a building that really says what it is. It's it's for cleaning uh, part of the the catapult system, because these missiles are heavy and big, and if you just fired them off and then aimed them up the ramp and let them go, they wouldn't take off. They needed some kind of assistance to get to be fired along the ramp to give them that launching system. And basically, it was steam. It was steam that was used to uh, to actually uh, uh, launch them. It was a mix of hydrogen peroxide and potassium permanganate mixed together. Very, very corrosive uh, uh, materials. You get, you get uh, the react, and you get steam created, and this pushed, then pushed a piston that pushed the missile or the rocket up the ramp with the engines running and launched it into into the air. So those chemicals that were were created every time it fired, you had to wash everything off. And so this is part of that cleaning and washing everything before you bring the next missile up because you don't want it to to get mixed together. It's very corrosive. Um, So that's what this building was used for. It's just extraordinary, the technology, Pete, isn't it? Every time you talk about this, all the elements that went into effectively just firing a bomb at London. The, the end result was pretty straightforward. But the amount of technology and personnel and research and development and building that went on just to enable this to happen is really quite extraordinary. And in fact, it was, it was the problem that the Germans had. They could not focus on one aspect of the war. I, th- I think the Germans would have had a lot more success if they just said, we make good tanks, let's make lots of them, or our aircraft are good, or we need to train more pilots. They just they couldn't keep their they, they couldn't keep their attention to one project, could they? I think that was the that was the issue, and it, and it's partly manpower, but because people are obviously there are all sorts of things going on in in Berlin and and elsewhere where people are arguing. I need the manpower of this. I need the money to go to this, and they're saying no, it should be on this. It should be on that, uh, and that's what is you're uh, you're right. It's, that's what's causing the the problem here. I think what's interesting is once they did get it right and they got this firing and they knew it knew it would work. Then they made a template and every single site, no matter where you are, no matter whether you're in a wood or in a built-up area or wherever they're going to build it, everything is in the same place. So it means that if you find one building and you know where it is, you, you, you can literally say, I'm going to walk 30 paces that way and I will hit the other building because the Germans couldn't deviate. This is how they built them. From then on, they were all exactly the same. Again, we often view it as quite Germanic. It's just a repetition over and over again, exactly the same. Also would have made it very handy if you were a, a, a an Air Force a photograph interpreter looking to, looking for sites. It would have made them pretty identifiable from the air. 
Yeah, and, that, and that's exactly it. Once they knew what they were looking for, once they pinpointed, they didn't even know quite what all the buildings were for. They could they could see the launch ramp and they knew what that was, but the other buildings, no, until the resistance got into uh, to some of them and actually said, well, we think it's this, and it made sense, or, or, or they picked up some information from elsewhere, then then it was just another building. But once you got the layout, then you could, yeah, you could juxtapose that onto another area and say, well, if that's that, then that's got to be that. And in there, there's something else. And so, yeah, and that's why they were easy to find once you got that layout sorted out. And the next building is the one that really gave the game away as well. This was a very big, high building, the anti-magnetic building. No ferrous materials in it because it's where they set the gyro compass. And so they could literally, it has to be big and vast because they're going to hang the rocket from the ceiling while they, while they position it to make sure that it's, uh, it's facing the right way and they can set the gyros. So big, big building, no ferrous material. So it's made out of concrete and breeze blocks, but no uh, reinforcing. Hence a slight problem that once uh, it was attacked, it was the building that fell over the easiest. So in, in this site, it's, it's very badly destroyed. When you be, when you're doing these walks, you you get the gist of you have to go to several of these sites to actually see the whole picture because there are complete ones where they knocked out the ramp so they didn't need to knock out the anti magnetic building so you can find complete anti magnetic buildings and it's well worth uh, trying to find another one because they are fairly spectacular buildings but here it's been it's been flattened it's always again easy to find it's always aligned with the launch uh, the, the the actual launch ramp so it's facing exactly the same angle as the launch ramp and the launch ramp in fact is facing directly to london and in fact had been zeroed with tower bridge in the center of london that's what they were actually the aiming point was tower bridge absolutely extraordinary and um we're in the heart of the complex now aren't we where this was where the action occurred where the rockets were prepared for firing and indeed had this site become operational would have been fired what's what's next on the walk Yep. The other thing I should say, in the anti-magnetic building, because it is big, they put the wings on. So that is the final part. They put the little stubby wings that went onto the, to the outside and they are fitted here as well. The next building that we'll see is right alongside the launch ramp and it's the launch control bunker. And it just looks like an, a bunker you'd expect to see on the Normandy coast, uh, like a fire slit at the front and heavy concrete and a doorway at the back. But in fact, this one is, is designed to withstand the blast as the thing takes off and also just in case to su survive the blast if it goes all horribly wrong. Um, so they actually had a, a very thin slot window that looked onto the, the launching pad um, and uh, and a great steel inside, a steel, I suppose, window um, uh, shutter that would come down and block the window uh, during during the launching. And apparently the shaking was unbelievable. Even within inside these uh, these bunkers, that they, they they were shaken by the the pulsing of the uh, of the actual rocket itself, and then this steam catapult blasting it up uh, up the ramp. Uh, and the control, uh, the firing bunkers nearly always survive because they are so so enormous lumps of concrete some of them uh, you have to say were destroyed as the first world war blockhouses were destroyed an effort was made in some areas to destroy these uh, after the war by detonating explosives and using them as uh, as practice really during uh, with military forces after the war the french forces uh, so uh, some of them have been destroyed but here it's uh, it's intact um and then the final thing is the ramp itself. Now, sadly, the the actual firing ramps are never there because they're steel and they were salvaged for scrap after the war. Anything that was steel, doors, they, they all went. 
But here we have, it is just so very, very visual because the blast walls that went each side of the ramp that ran in the middle, the, the ramp sloping up and uh, into the sky, uh, the walls each side mirror it exactly. So we have one to the left, one to the right, and they are built for blast protection from bombs. So if bombs are landing, they will not damage the ramp in, in the middle. And they still survive undamaged. And so it's absolutely, it, it, it's stunning. It's right in front of you, and you could stand on the fire point and look out uh, along where the ramp would have been within these two enormous walls. Absolutely extraordinary. When you think about... You mentioned the force that it required to launch this thing towards London. And considering the speed, the speed was something like over 600 kilometres an hour, wasn't it? These things were flying at. It's, it's a huge mass to be fired at that sort of velocity. Yeah, it, 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 and that's why it needed this this to get it into the uh, into the air. Interestingly, one of the things that the observers uh, the ob- uh, were looking for uh, on the the photographs, the aerial photography, because the the actual piston that fires the uh, the, the, the the missile up the ramp, the, the the bomb up the ramp, is going to land in the field, and it lands with such force it, it left great divots in the field. And sometimes, because they were so well camouflaged within the wood, and very often these ramps are within the wood, firing out of the wood you could see these divots in the ground for the ones that fired obviously this one hasn't didn't fire so you wouldn't but for the ones that did fire it became obvious what was going on again another another clue to as to what what was uh, what was happening we should also say that there are a number of v1 rockets and launch ramps preserved in museums around the world i know at duxford for example they have a v1 actually sitting on an original ramp which is quite extraordinary to look at so again continue, continuing our tours of great sites of Europe, uh, look out for those museums that do display um, original V1 um, rockets and launch ramps. I know at, uh, at, uh, at La Capole in uh, northern France, they also have a number of displays. Just, just extraordinary that this technology still survives today. It is indeed. And I think it uh, it did make an impression on everybody. And obviously it is going to uh, dictate future weapon development and we end up with the with the cruise missiles. But the ones that were, were firing from northern France and Belgium, as I said, the, uh, the, they started on the 13th of June in 1944 and they were overrun by the 1st of September. So it's a very, all that effort, all this building, it's a very small window that they could be used. That's not the end of them. They will be fired from Holland uh, against uh, uh, sites uh, on the occupied coastline. Um, we get uh, terrible uh, damage in Antwerp, uh, Brussels and Liège, all, all hit by, uh, by V1s later on during the war. Uh, so they did move, and they also continued to, to hit Britain, but they were being uh, launched from the air. So they were strapped underneath aircraft and then launched uh, from the air uh, at Britain. So Britain is not yet free of the uh, of the V1, but the V1 being launched from northern uh, France and Belgium, uh, 1st of September, that's when it, when it all, all stops. So those are the main buildings that, where the rockets were assembled and, and, and fired. What other buildings are we going to see as we walk around this site, Pete? Well, there's one that you have to be quite careful of if you're exploring yourself. And this is a, a tour that you can extend uh, if you want to. There are various uh, articles online that you can find and you can actually go and explore in, in woods that appear to have nothing in them. And one of them is the water tanks. There's an awful lot of water needed for washing down for, for, for all aspects of, uh, of the, 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 uh, the launching. And so there are water tanks everywhere and they tend to be slightly dangerous because they're now overgrown and, and difficult to see. But there are water tanks. And again, actually, the RAF weren't sure what they were at first because they started building these inverted pyramid things and they just didn't know what they were. And they're actually water tanks. It's called a, a, a pyramid water tank and it was used uh, for, uh, uh, for um, 
as I say, for washing off the uh, the launch ramps, etc. Also, detonator uh, bunkers for the detonators. And again, because of the danger of these things detonating, they're built into the ground, so they look like little uh, bunkers. And then chemical storage bunkers for the two aspects of the uh, of creating the steam. And they were called T-Stoff and Z-Stoff. And they're, they're literally uh, where you kept the, the various uh, two parts of these chemicals used for, for launching the, uh, uh, the, the rocket with a steam, a steam-assisted takeoff. Well, Pete, it's an absolutely fascinating site, as are all of these sites. I've been to a number of them, and they're they're quite extraordinary, especially when you combine them with the museums and the and the other uh, the, the the other places that that remember this story. It would be remiss of me not to mention as well that at Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours, we do a tour of the V Weapons site. It's a very specific type of tour. It's quite an unexpected tour, I think. But if you're interested in this, you can take a couple of days. And travel with you, Pete. You lead these tours and, and go around and visit some of these sites. That must be extraordinary to actually walk the ground with people and show them these impressive sites for the first time. It is because they they do they do literally blow you away because you're you're into a northern French little wood thinking that you're probably going to see a couple of buildings and you go around the corner and there's these enormous structures. It's just extraordinary. I mean, it is lucky that that they still survive because there are very few have any kind of protection on them. And so the farmer, if he can get enough money together to to have them taken out, he will. But in a lot of cases, they're used by the farmers themselves for storing timber in and uh, and all sorts of other uses, vehicles and things like that. And so they're still there and actually you'll find that they're quite accommodating a lot of the, the the local people they're interested that we are interested and so so they're very helpful in pointing out some things that we may miss uh, if you uh, if you didn't have, have local help but yeah they're they're fantastic and, and well worth having a look at well it's a fascinating tour and it's a fascinating chapter of history and if you visit our website at battlefields.com.au you can learn all about touring the v1 v2 the vengeance weapons sites with pete smith Pete, it's been a fascinating journey. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, and sharing your knowledge and expertise on these exciting sites. No, great, Matt. It's uh, good to be here. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you could subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.